it can create like this incredibly false divide between the people that are there because we're looking at folks like so-and-so's violent versus so-and-so who isn't when the actual violence is totally created by the prison. It's completely created by the prison, by the PIC, by capitalism, by all, by all the stuff. When we're talk- we have to think when we talk about violence that we have to talk about the whole thing, not just the one incident that sent someone to prison. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey, y'all. Welcome. Thank you for coming to our study and struggle on intersectionality. I'm super excited for this conversation with our incarcerated comrades and with MK, with Miriam, um, also intimidated. This is going to be awesome. Um, I want before before we start, I want to share something with everyone. So I've shared this in a couple of different spaces. There's a Supreme Court case called Alone versus Shabazz. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you. And this is the dissenting opinion, but I would encourage you to check out this case for yourselves. The, this is the dissenting opinion authored by Ju- um, Justice Brennan. Prisoners are persons you'd rather not think about. Banished from everyday sight, they exist in a shadow world that only dimly enters our awareness. They are members of a total institution that controls their daily existence in a way few of us can imagine. Prison is a complex of physical arrangements and of measures, all wholly governmental, all wholly performed by agents of government, which determine the total existence of certain human beings, except perhaps in the inevitably there as well, from sundown to sundown, sleeping, waking, speaking, silence. Working, playing, viewing, eating, voiding, reading, alone with members of the general adult population. I'm sorry, alone and with others. It is not so with general with members of the general adult population. State governments have not undertaken to require members of the general adult population to rise at a certain hour, retire at a certain hour, eat at certain hours, live for periods with no companionship whatsoever, wear certain clothing or submit to oral and anal searches after visiting hours, nor have state by its own demands, ordered by its own customs, and ruled by those whose claim to power rests on raw necessity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nothing can change the fact, however, that the society that these prisoners inhabit is our own. Prisoners may exist on the margins of that society, but no act of will can sever them from the body politic. When prisoners emerge from the shadows to press a constitutional claim, they invoke no alien set of principles drawn from a distant culture. Rather, they speak the charter upon they speak the language of the charter upon which all of us rely to hold official power accountable. They ask us to acknowledge that power exercised in the shadows must be restrained at least as diligently as power that acts in the sunlight. So that's my favorite dissenting opinion ever. 
um, I chose that particular piece because I think it speaks to prison. Um, I disagree a little bit about like how awesome the Constitution is, but I get the sentiment, right? It says that no act of will can sever us from the body politic. Even though the body politic for a lot of folks like wills this to be, but this is just not the case. And so these are some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight. We are not severed from the body politic. All people incarcerated are is exactly that. We just locked up. We're not really, really gone, right? And I'm just, I'm looking forward to getting into this. Miriam? Oh, thank you so much, Moni. Um, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody first? And just say oh, a little crap. bit about, no, <laughs> just say a little <laughs> bit about you so they know, and then I'll throw it over to me after. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm Monica Cosby. I'm, I'm a great. Grandma, I'm overwhelmed with like the fact that I'm a grandma, even though I've been one since I came out of prison, but every so often and more and more lately, it just hits me again. So it's like, ultimately, I'm a grandma. I'm an organizer and activist, and I do what I do because I want us all free. And may I say something? I heard someone say, or rather someone tweeted about, and then someone else checked me about this because I was would say things like, I'm probably not going to see abolition in my lifetime and stuff like that. And I got two different checks. One was just like a random tweet that I saw and I can't remember who it was, but one person just said to me, fool, we do this every day. You see it every day. You talk about it every day. And so, yeah, I have been like really, really wrong. I see abolition every day and I'm glad for it. Now, Miriam. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so, so much, Moni, for kicking us off in the way that you did. Um, good evening or good afternoon, depending on where you are joining us from. Um, I'm really honored to be part of this evening's event alongside my friend and comrade, Monica Cosby. Um, it's also such an honor to be in virtual conversation with Amber and April and Tank. Um, thanks also to Study and Struggle for the invitation for all of us to be in conversation for so much of the behind the scenes work um, to make this possible yeah. today. Um, we're just uh, really both very grateful for that and appreciate all the labor because I know how much labor goes into that. Thanks also to Haymarket for all the behind the scenes work uh, that you all do to make these conversations possible. Um, honestly, I really feel like I just want to listen tonight. Um, I think that the people who are experts tonight are my co-presenters and co-panelists. Um, I learn a lot from Monica on a regular basis just by witnessing um, what she does in the world, who she is, how she moves. And so, you know, always interested in continuing to learn, constant student on my end. Um, one thing I was noticing, you're gonna be hearing some audio clips from Amber, April, and Tank tonight. Um, and I picked out one part 
of an audio clip that you'll be hearing. And it was Amber at some point who said, I am not allowed to hug someone, even if they are crying, because that's a 244 rule violation, public display of affection. And I just, that stuck with me. It's something I know, you know, intellectually, my brain, my head. Um, but I think just hearing Amber articulate that really sat with me in a particular kind of way. And for my entire adult life, and probably even when I was a young person, I understood in real ways that prison was a rupture, that it was a rupture, but that folks inside were constantly doing this really important life-giving work of weaving, um, weaving what you'll also hear mentioned in one of the audio pieces, these webs of connection, these webs of connection. It's not just people on the inside, though, who are doing that. Some of us on the outside try really hard to weave webs of connection amongst ourselves on the outside in order to find a way to connect with our comrades on the inside, our loved ones on the inside. I've been thinking a lot about the labor of doing that connecting, the labor which is so difficult, um, often labor that we're doing in really kind of surreptitious hidden ways because as Monica spoke to in her opening, there's this kind of, um, you know, the legalese of rules and laws and all these things that are to enforce this prison as rupture, right? We're always trying to trying to overcome that. And so I want to speak to the draining parts of that, the not joyful parts of that, the effective and uh, institutional labor of that today as we talk, um, as we keep going. And then I want to think about the other side, which is the suturing of the ruptures that we're always engaged in all the time. And that being its own project of care and care work. And so we're going to talk a little bit tonight about the concept of intersectionality, though I don't think that's the most critical thing um, really to be focused on tonight. We're also going to be talking about relationships and we're going to be talking about care. And we're going to be talking about ways forward into kind of ways forward led by the people on the inside who know best and the most and from whom we ought to take our marching orders. So that's a little bit about what's on my mind this evening. It's all over the map and all over the place. And I didn't write actual notes down, but... These are thoughts that were coming through as I was listening to the audio prior to this event tonight. And we'll both have more to say after we hear from our comrades. So, Monica, do you have something else that you want to add in before we throw over to Sean? No, I don't. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. 
Absolutely. All right, Sean, we can go to. Intersectionality is a huge deal. Um, my brain melted when I read the um, Kambahi River Collective statement. Um, I got a copy of that, and like that made me understand like what exactly is really being talked about here because. We have all these different identities that are just floating off in space, right? At least that's the way they're treated by the system. You know, somebody, I think I've used this example before in a lot of places. Somebody's disabled and they're going to church, right? So that means they have this religious identity and they have this disabled identity. Now, trying to get an accommodation in prison, the prison forces you to treat those two things completely separate. So you end up being in a situation where the chaplain's office and the ADA coordinator are going to both be pointing at each other saying, nope, it's the other guy's job. Because the person is treated as only having one identity at a time. When persons talk to the ADA coordinator, they're treated as having this religious identity. When the person's speaking to the chaplain, they're treated as having a disabled identity. That allows each of those functionaries to say not my problem and the person's problems then don't get fixed. Only by treating a person as having these multiple identities do you actually get anywhere moving forward. And enforcing that and not allowing the system to erase your identity. Like forcing the system to recognize I have intersectionality. Then actually causes them to have to answer you when you're doing, you know, this, this push for change. I also think that the intersectionality part is really important because it leads you to different conclusions. So if we just consider people of color, then sure, there's a list of issues that we're going to attack, but that's not going to help women. It's not going to help people with disabilities. That's not going to help LGBT. TQ people, that's not going to help someone who's from a religious minority or any of a thousand different identities that a person can have. So that's where I think that's important. And I also think that that, that relates back to that need to be genuine and that need to be interconnected because without those two things, you're not going to get to the bottom of a person's intersectionality. For me, it came to a point where I don't want to live in a country that has 25% of the world's prison population. And I don't want to live in a country that still uses a form of slave labor, that still incarcerates black and brown bodies at a much higher rate than white, and claims freedom for all but for 2.5 million in prison. And as I begin volunteering, my reasons changed a bit. About 10 years now, and Kobe comes to see me. She comes to see me regularly, and I basically am like the reporter. I kind of like I'm the one that reports everything, so I think that's my job. I am the one that, when I see injustice or when certain things are happening, I'm the one that does the alert, that's the media alert, to let them know whether I have to wake them up in the middle of the night on an email or whatever. I'm the one that's telling them what's going on. Yes, yeah, so two months ago, um, transgender inmates were allowed to transfer to a women's facility. 
that the system chose to make a spectacle out of them by passing out condoms to the entire population once they arrived, announcing their difference, which separates all parties involved for you know, harassment, discrimination, and differential treatment while creating and encouraging the hostile environment. I feel like most of us have multi, multiple categories that intersect to make up our identity. Although we have different life experiences, we can still choose to have empathy for others, I believe. I know of two transgender inmates who were found to be not suitable by the parole board because the panel stated that they were confused about their identity. And, and what is the difference between proof of identity for a person who is normal by society standards compared to a person who identifies as something different than their gender birth? So why does the justice system fail to see that transgender is not an individual sexual orientation? We get used to the norms of society, so why does the boundary between gender and sex become blurred in an environment like this? Like prison. Why has the word sexism turned into genderism based on the idea that everybody's gender expression should match the sex? It's like we are encouraged by the parole board, and, and I've, been the board, I've been to the parole board three times, and we are encouraged by the parole board to gain insight on ourselves. So why do people who find themselves as transgender become paralyzed and penalized for it? They have a fear to even want to go in there and even speak their truth. And that label of being transgender is what divides an individual as different. And the system, the system should train, educate, and accommodate the different ways individuals seek self-identity. The system, officers, and inmates need to broaden their understanding of the categorization related to inequality. How can they understand the experience of an individual through an intersectional lens if they will not even try? I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't, for the life of me, I could not understand in the prison, you might not necessarily have the language of intersectionality, but you can see it by who's in there and the things that we all have in common. So like in Illinois Department of Corrections, well, when I first got to IDOC, the majority of us were black, right? Um, most of us came from poor places, um, whether we were from like white rural Illinois or in the Chicago Greenland metropolitan area, right? But we also had so many other common themes, common experiences of like violence, gendered violence, domestic violence, mental wellness issues stemming from trauma, from all the violence, um, addiction issues, things like this, right? varying levels and degrees of disability, all these different kinds of things. So we know what it is, you know? And so it's really just like catching up language. I guess I wanna say, we're just like catching up language and vocabulary. The best way I can put it is we're talking about a lot of the same things in prison that we talk about out here, just kind of differently, right? Just a little bit differently, maybe not necessarily as proper, and there may not be a, there may or may not be a whole lot of cussing, but we're talking about a lot of the same things, right? Watching, especially like for long change in the population as laws changed out here, right? Um, but we always know that that's there, and so navigating through that. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Keep going. And so if we've got something going on, like, so say I've been in the prison, say when I was new in the prison and I didn't know shit, I was just coming from the county. 
right? So I got to the prison and my outdate was like all a gazillion years away. Um, I didn't know nothing about the prison. I knew what I heard, but I hadn't actually been in the prison yet. I'm just getting there, right? So it's having other folks they not we're not necessarily from the same place but they know i'm trying to find out about this that or the other who to drop a referral to to see a counselor to get in school all the different things right and what type of school program is maybe going to be better for you right? do you want an apprenticeship or do you want to go into something more academic this was back when we had programs um and so it's having that kind of understanding right i think yeah that's what i've got like you have to know you have to be able to know when you can move around and when somebody else can move around in the prison and how. That's what intersectionality means to me in the context of just being in the prison. Right? Like I can't get this prison job over here for whatever reasons, you know, but so-and-so can, and we need so-and-so to have that job over there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, um, I really appreciated what you said, Monica, about um, that you had conversations basically about concepts like intersectionality or even, you know, and like abolition on the inside. But you may have Mm -hmm. been having those conversations just using different language, right? Language that meant something to you and meant something to your comrades on the inside and your, you know, um, your your friends and your the people you got to know in your community on the inside. You were having these conversations already in your own language, in your own way, understanding it that way. And I think that says that's a lesson for all of us that language while important as a marker and a way for us to find ways to try to understand each other, there it's not everything, right? You could still convey similar ideas using new terms. For me, um, the interesting parts of intersectionality are less this concept of identity and more this concept that per- certain forces of oppression combine to create new forms of suffering, right? That's the thing, at least for me, in the way that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw talked initially about intersectionality that attracted me. It was that, yeah, you know, our identities are important, of course, but so are the social habits. Monica, you may want to mute yourself because I can hear your background noises. Just in case, yeah. Um, but anyway, our identities are important, but so are the social locations that we inhabit that are connected to those identities. And the reality is that our identities are not actually fixed. They shift and they change, even as our social locations sometimes stay the same because of oppression. And so I just like to remind myself all the time that while our identities shape our politics, they're not determinative of our politics. And what really that means to me is that we have to find ways together to struggle and to fight together. And that while our identities matter, they aren't the only thing. (laughs) We have to find a politics that we can agree to and that will give us a foundation from which we can actually struggle. 
This is called study and struggle. And to me, it's not an accident that those two things come together. Um, it's a big part of an abolitionist politic to study so that we understand through political and popular education, you know, what these concepts are. I think it was Amber who said that she um, uh, was uh, learning, she read the Kambahi uh, River Collective statement while incarcerated, you know, that 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 study portion of trying to grasp for new ideas and new ways to understand your circumstances while you're locked up is mirrored by those of us who are on the outside who are trying to study a politics to understand it in order to be better at struggle, to be more informed about the questions that we ought to be asking, to give ourselves some direction and a sense of what we're actually doing together um, in order to get free. So I think to me, intersectionality is, you know, it's it's a it's a term that's been given to a set of ideas that people have been expressing in different ways for a very long time. But it's it's not the only thing. You know, there are other frameworks for also defining ourselves and also um, understanding the world. And so I, I take the parts of intersectionality that really, you know, hit me particularly in the, you know, kind of solar plex, you know, plexus, whatever they call it, which is that concept of forces of oppression, oppression combining to create new forms of suffering. And the question then becomes how all of these different forms of discrimination act together to limit your likelihood to be able to live a livable, um, uh, a livable life, right? A lot of what intersectionality helps us understand is why some of us have a more likelihood to have our lives shortened by just living in the world, right? The forces of oppression that put us, you know, that kind of, you know, make it so that our social locations trap us in particular ways. And then those things combining to create new forms of suffering. So anyway, I, I think a lot about that when I think about intersectionality and its uses and its usefulness to us in struggle. So, Monica. Todd, do you have something else that you want to add or um, do you want us to move to the next clip? I'm just completely in agreement with you. You, right, understood intersectionality as those things that's stepping on everybody's neck in maybe a different way to whatever different degrees, right? Um, but that's what it is. it is when all these different systems of oppressions are just strangling folks from 52 different directions. Thank you so much. We can go to the next. So you you brought up this um, this quote. Um, it's Saidiya Hartman talking about Christina Sharp's book in the wake. Care is the antidote to violence. Do you want to talk about what that phrase means to you a bit? Have 
friend's mother during the uh, during the sentencing phase uh, tell me that she forgives me and uh, that she loves me. You know, that right there was the, the highest form of care that I could receive because from that point on, you know, I started caring for myself. And that was that was beginning for me to actually, you know, approach how I would do time. How I would come inside prison and do time. I took on all that I knew that I learned and you know saying that I actually, you know, learned on the streets in the in the stressful gang culture and came up in here and just added, you know, saying tenfold to the toxic, you know what I'm saying, culture that we are that, that already exists inside prison. Right? And so but that care allowed me to care for myself, which allowed me to care for others. And that right there, the antidote, you know what I'm saying, is 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 a healing bomb, you know what I'm saying, you know, against violence. And I, and so and from that, with, 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 the, with the aid and assistance of some community members, we formed a, a, a group that was called HEAL, Healing, Education, and Accountability for Liberation, and from the, from the, based on the restorative justice principles, where care is at the center, right? So, yeah, that right there, I most definitely, that, 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 that quote really, it, it, it really resonated with me because I lived that. Because 
know, it doesn't really matter what the class is. It could be one of the bullshit offender change programs that don't actually really help people the DOC does, but it's still an excuse to celebrate people. And taking those excuses is kind of a, a, a big deal because, you know, life can get hard here. We just had a week-long lockdown due to COVID restrictions uh, last week, and everybody was struggling. We got off that lockdown. You literally had people dancing on the tier because the lockdown was over. So it's things like that that then, like, help people to find that resilience just to, like, keep pushing forward despite being incarcerated. Great. Um, thank you so much uh, to Tank and to um, uh, Amber, I think it was, who were speaking to the concept of care. And uh, the questioner asked Tank a question based on um, something that Sadia Hartman had said at an event that was celebrating um, Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake, um, when it first came out a few years ago. And um, she'd said, care is the antidote to violence. And I think um, I would certainly agree that care is an antidote to violence, not the only one, obviously. There are many other kinds of potential antidotes to violence, but I do think care can be one of them. Though some people would disagree. In my concept of a kind of a, a liberatory framework of care, um, I do think it can be an antidote to violence. Um, I would also say that I've been thinking a lot about care for a long time. Um, like I'm interested in how care is made possible in repressive and unfree spaces. And in that way, prisons have a lot to teach us about care work and how people care for each other within those very violent, repressive spaces, that they do that uh, in spite and maybe also because of those things. So I think a lot about that. And as we've been also in the in the clip, um, there was a um, Amber talked about COVID, the global pandemic, and the impact that the global pandemic has had on people on the inside is devastating. It's had a devastating impact in general. Almost over 650,000 people in the U.S. alone um, killed by the virus. And then millions of people around the world dead from this global pandemic. And I, I had thought maybe at the beginning that, um, I guess, you know, I, I've been asking myself, is it strange to be interested in the ideas of collective care during a time when it's apparent how that a many, that some people, not many, but like a good number of people don't desire to take care, they don't desire to take care of themselves and even to take care of those closest to them. The thing we're seeing with these pushbacks to wearing masks and 
to getting a vaccine and, you know, so is it that care means something different to those people? Perhaps like, and what, what, what does it mean to people? For me, care has always meant to keep myself and to keep others alive with consent, right? The key part is with consent from them. If I'm talking about other people to keep alive And so right now, it's like in a strange way, this type of care feels elusive and yet in other places really abundant. We've seen it with the way that mutual aid has been activated during this global pandemic, this kind of collective caring. And then we've seen it on the other side, this elusiveness of the people who are refusing to take care or don't seem to have a desire to take care. Like, what does that all mean? What does that all mean when we're talking about our folks on the inside and the brutality of those spaces and them making a way with very little way? And I wonder, Mani, if you could speak to, I know you've thought a lot about this concept and more than that, you've lived the concept. Can you speak to your thoughts about care? I I kind of went all over the map because I'm all over the map right now in thinking about the connections between inside and outside and care. I'm interested in your thoughts. Okay. I think I know you are absolutely right. We take care of each other in prison because of prison and in spite of prison, right? So we're taking care of each other because of prison and in spite of prison. And so as an example, um, and this extends to all different kinds of things, right? It extends to all different kinds of things. I used to make soup all the time. So the one of the big staples, I think, in every prison, although I'm not sure, but I feel like in every prison, there's probably noodles, right? There's probably noodles, them robin noodles. And so if you got to hook up in the kitchen, maybe you can dress them up a little bit. And so if somebody's going through something and it's one of the things that we can't do anything about, like sometimes somebody will just snap out because I'm on to go the fuck home, right? You can't do anything about that. But we can sit with you and be with you. You know what I'm saying? And be some kind of, if maybe not a comfort, but you just know you're not in there by yourself feeling this kind of way, right? And so somebody will cook something. This is just what happens, right? Um, Excuse me. It is, I think care is, and I think I've talked about this before in other places, taking care is refusing to abandon, right? And so, when I've heard and read Ruthie Wilson Gilmore talking about organized abandonment, right? And I've heard other folks talk about deliberate, uh, like a deliberate disinvestment from poor communities and poor communities of color and like so, right? Where all of us wind up is is in the prison. And so when we care for each other, whether it's making soup or fixing somebody a cup of coffee or crying with somebody because you're just mad because you got shook down for the 10th time in one month or whatever it is. All of these things are taking care, right? It's also helping each other with legal work, right? Helping somebody write a PLA or a post-conviction or a clemency. It is doing somebody's hair because they're finna get that visit when reunification ride comes. Um, 
It's all those things. It's also very core. So it's the natural things that we just do every day. But it's also the ones that we coordinate with each other. So like on different holidays, there will be double shops, right? So commissary will shut down and we know it's going to shut down. So they'll allow us to spend twice as much money and buy twice as much stuff. And sometimes there's like little extra Christmas items or whatever. And there's always going to be some folks who don't shop, right? So people who do, we kind of like get with each other and everybody else to make sure everybody's got something. You know what I'm saying? Um, It is the way, especially for like people who have gotten really, really close. We all have each other's mom's phone numbers or some or our partners or somebody from out here. We have somebody else's phone number from out here. So if one of us comes up missing, we can call out here and be like, hey, this is what's going on. We need some fucking help. I have I. I don't know how many times we've written down on little pieces, little tiny ass pieces of paper, right? Uptown People's Law Center. They can help, you know? So it's all of those things. Care is, I've spoken of this one before. Um, one of the women that, you know, she was a long timer and she was, she was a baby when she got locked up, right? So she committed suicide. Um, and I hate, I don't even like saying that shit. I just, she was murdered by suicide in IDOC is what the fuck happened because they wouldn't let us care for her. Right. So this care extends to like people that are in extreme mental crises that may be in tune with another reality. Right. So you just, you're there with them while they're in tune someplace else and you're running in and somebody else is running interference with whatever correctional staff. So they don't take one of us and throw us in a strip cell. Not everybody comes back from those and not everybody comes back from those the same, you know? So we're not trying to have somebody go for a psyche valve and a strip cell and all that when all they need is just an hour and somebody to keep them company, you know? Um, It is also, I took a meditation class while I was locked up. We had, this was while I was in Lincoln, we wound up with some, interesting programming right and we had a meditation teacher he was always talking about Gurdjieff and all this other stuff this is pretty cool right um but he was explaining like mindful to a, mindfulness to us in a way that he just thought like we could not understand the concept taking care is being mindful I don't really differentiate between the two so in the prison in one of the prisons that I was in we had a seven-man shower there's like maybe 18 inches of space between the shower heads, right? And there's seven of them them in there. So taking care, this mindfulness means that only three people are going to get in the shower. So everybody has a little space, right? And this taking care of this taking care means that if that fourth person tries to come and it's like, now you don't see us here, you know, so this taking care, this mindfulness, it is literally making sure people have the things that they need or coming as close as we can to making that shit happen. Um, It is making sure people respect other people. That's just not always easy. Like, I talk a lot of like good stuff about prison, but like a lot of ugly shit happens too, right? Taking care extends to the ways that we deal with harm and hurt when it happens. You know, that hurt and harm doesn't just, it doesn't just happen to that one person, even though one person might have a black eye, but that whole motherfucking housing unit's gonna get locked down and shook down and all that other shit. 
And so it's getting with folks to be like, hey, you hurting everybody and you too, because we'll quit fucking with you and cut it out. Right. But it also means that you're giving somebody because we know, because we hear, we've been there. We did that too. We have fucked up too. So it's giving somebody a chance to not keep fucking up. It's giving somebody a chance to re to make some, to make it right, to repair the harm. We've already been thrown away. So I think by and large, we're not too keen on throwing folks away. Michael fucking with you for a minute. You know what I'm saying? And one of the things when I say don't throw people away, like, so that doesn't mean like where you have been hurt or harmed, like really, really bad. That doesn't mean like you still, you're still in community with folks, right? But that doesn't, being in community does not necessarily mean you got to be right upside somebody's head when they have hurt you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's okay to give somebody 50 feet. You know what I'm saying? And so we understand that. And so what will happen is because you can't necessarily move around. It's not like you can just be like, oh, well, I'm just going to go here in the prison. You're either going to get transferred when you don't want to, right? Or something like that. But sometimes, like, we can find a way where if two people just cannot be in the same space, we're going to work that out where these two people are not going to be in the same space without going to SEG, right? Without going to solitary confinement. So it's finding a way, it's finding and making a way to work some shit out, especially in the prison. Am I making any sense? Absolutely. You're making total sense um, and just sharing so many gems um, in, in, in about, you know, the experience, your experience and what people should take away. Um, I'm going to just read a very short poem that I really love that um, to me encapsulates part of what care means um, when we're talking about inside, outside. So I think you can uh, mute yourself, Moni, just so that I don't get the feedback and then we'll, after this, we'll move over to Sean so Sean can get to the last couple of clips. Um, this is a poem by uh, Jimmy Santiago Baca called Letters Come to Prison. Very short. Written uh, 1976, Arizona State Prison, Florence, Arizona. From the cold hands of guards, flocks of white doves handed to us through the bars, our hands like nests hold them as we unfold the wings. They crash upward through layers of ice around our hearts, cracking crisply as we leave our shells and fly over the waves of fresh words, gliding softly on top of the world, flapping our wings for the lost horizon. I really love that poem for lots of reasons. The imagery is beautiful. It's really short to the point. But one of the main reasons that I've done work over the many years that I've been doing anti-criminalization work in terms of both, you know, having letter writing events 
uh, to our folks on the inside, but also having a regular practice of writing letters myself. I have many, many pen pals now that I've accumulated over the years. And my friend Vicki Law talks about this all the time. Uh, you know, she's literally has to take like time off to write to people. It's, it's such a, it's a labor. It is like I talked about at the beginning, a labor of these weaving of connections that can be really hard when you have a life that is full of other things you have to do. But I so appreciate taking time. My writing is once a month on the last Sunday of every month, I write my letters and, um, I've done this for as a practice for many, many years, both to people who are in my family who are on the inside and then people who are loved ones that I've gotten to know and then pen pals who I've just gotten to know. Um, and I just think about those letters as kind of small material um, encapsulations of care um, and how, how important letters are to folks on the inside. Um, for so many reasons that you know, Mani, um, and how important it is, I hope, for people who are listening, you know, to this at whatever time you're listening to it, to just do that, to create those small material embodiments of care in those letters that we send to people on the inside and that they send to us and that offer care to us, too. It's a reciprocal relationship when it's not a one-way relationship. I get as much or more out of my letters from my friends and family than they probably do from my very boring letters that I write about what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So, um, Mani, do you have anything you want to add before we throw over to Sean? No, I'm going to refer back to this in a little bit, but it also goes with the next part. So I, I don't right now. Great. So I think, Sean, I think you've got, um, you're showing two clips in a row, right? So, yeah. How does the prison dictate the types of relationships you can have with people outside as well as in? Well, if you're the formerly incarcerated people, if they're on parole, you have to go through all these channels just to even have a communication or a relationship with them. The the prison really, really, really is a stickler when it comes to that one. A lot of people don't listen, and, and there's not really a consequence. But they make it a point to let you know that you can't stay in contact with somebody who just paroled. So that kind of relationship kind of gets strained for a lot of reasons. That person cannot um, come and visit you a court or, you know, whatever the... And, as far as like, I'm giving examples for even my attorneys and going to board, my attorneys who have a legal right to come and visit me and prepare me for board have a hard time getting a visit. The prison will not answer the phone. Or one time I sat over there for three hours and waited, nobody. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. No one showed up in a visiting room. There's a lot of people in here who are little family members, and the family will call to um, inform the inmate that their mother passed or their father passed, and the prison refuses to give that information to some people. So there is a middle block. There is a block there that um, that the prison does to to you know in, you know influence the relationship between the incarcerated and the not incarcerated.
and there's really nothing that we can do. We are like um, sitting ducks. We're like, there's nothing pretty much we can do but complain to the outside people who are already having the problem getting into us. So it's like we can complain as much as we can. We can file grievances. We can, you know, take it all the way up to maybe even doing appeal uh, or writ. But it's really like a barrier. And the more that the fight out there, the movement is happening out there, it, it, it makes it even um, harder to even get those conversations or even get that relationship between the outside and the inside. It's like the, the, it's like the, the administration has their own opinion. And if they don't like what the protesters or whoever it is is out there doing whatever, they will make us lock down and they'll say institutional lockdown and lock us in our rooms until the protesters leave. Well, because of that, like a camaraderie is born with some of the women in here who really would not have spoken to each other before. You know, so when, when things are like that, when people see things like that, it kind of like... You have 60 seconds remaining. It kind of brings us together a little bit and makes us form our own community and makes us start to, that's how we end up coming up with different ways to help the transgender integrate, you know, so we start to form our own community to help each other get through it. So this next question, you, you talked a little bit about how Miriam in her book talks about the experimentation, um, experimentation and how that's central to abolition. Could you talk a little bit about how experimentation has been significant to you inside? Yeah. Yeah, so just, just organizing, being able to organize, of course, you know, DOC got policies in place. That um that lays out as far as the type of relationship we we are supposed to have with um with people that come inside the hate the hate the sisters right those those co-conspirators you could say you know there's there's rules and, 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 and guidelines laid out say what they can and what they cannot do and so um so a person that you know you have to be creative. You know, yes. You don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to jeopardize folks. We want to. We want to continue to do this work. So we don't want to. The policy saying we can't. We can't communicate with them. And that's what. That's what, we're not going to do that. Right. We're not. We're not going to. We're not going to do that. You know. However, you know, what I'm saying you can be creative. You know, and um, and I always say this. You know, talk to your friends about the work that we're doing, and and and, and of course, people want to. People want to experience this themselves. They've never been inside a prison. And I hear the testimony from their friends or from, the, from their colleagues coming inside prison and doing this work, and they want to come inside. And I say this, talk to them about the work that we're doing and, and, and give them this option. Give them this option. Let them know the work we're doing and let them know how we need allies that can actually, that can actually stay out there, that, do, that don't come inside. When we, run, when, we, when we run this, you know what I'm saying, uh, when we run this risk of, you know what I'm saying, not being able to talk to them because of these rules. Right, and that person can be a, a, a hell of an ally, you know, what I'm saying out there that I can call, I can talk to, I can get on the JPay and communicate with. That's not breaking that's not breaking no rule. But there's and they're, they're inside, and they're part of the community of that 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 we're, that we're, that we're developing that we're that we first imagined, right? And, and it's and it's, it's, it's coming to it came to became true. Now we now we're living this this imagination. You know, it's no longer imagination; it's it's, it's, it's reality, and so. So I've been pretty, I've been pretty, I've been pretty successful at that. 
And so that's one of the that's that's one of the experiments you have to you, you have you have to be willing to take. You know, um, being 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 creative. You know, what I'm saying which is one of our which is one of our principles at BBC. We follow the quantum principles, Kawumba, which means creativity, right? And so I tell it to brothers all the time: be creative. You know, always you know what I'm be creative. You have um, you have to come together in order to be able to actually cause real change. No human being working alone has actually caused something real to exist. It's always been groups of people doing something. Now we get this individualist uh, narrative in America because the leader gets credit for everything that the group did. You know, Edison didn't actually invent a thousand different things. He had 10,000 people working for him that invented a thousand different things. He put his name on every single one of them. Right? Much the same can be said for Ford and every single one of our um, oil robber barons and industrialists from that entire era, which is where this narrative of the individual really came into its fruition. So we have to understand that we are not just individuals, you know, spitting into the wind. We are interdependent on each other. It is only through a web of connection that we're actually able to lean on each other, organize together, come together, and push back against the system, which is designed to break individuals, but doesn't actually know how to deal with a group. So I think that's like a part of really the key there. And that's also how the system itself keeps us from causing real change, is that it instituted a series of rules and regulations to interrupt that web of connection. I am not allowed to hug someone even when they're crying, because that is a 244 rule violation. Um, Public display of affection. I am not allowed to be in um, written contact with someone who comes into the prison and helps organize. Because then that volunteer coming into the prison doing organizing work loses their volunteer badge and can no longer do the work. Like, these are things that interrupt the web of connection. I mean, I'm a professional writer and I have to self-censor to get a lot of stuff out of the prison, and I have to be very creative about the way that I phrase things and present my argument, because otherwise, it never makes it out of the mailroom. It doesn't make it out into the outside world. So, a lot of times, something horrible will happen, and I can only speak to half of it, because the web of connection, communication, interdependence, and interreliance is inherently fractured by the rule system that they've put in place. So you have 60 seconds remaining. Wow, that was fast. I, I think that's one of the things that's really important fact. Um, are you able to call me back? Do you have time? Uh, yes. There is no line on the phone this morning, so I can call back. Okay, awesome. We'll talk in one second then. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks. After a word from our sponsors. <laughs> I mean, um... <laughs> All right. Talk soon. 
So there's a concept that I've been thinking of for a while that I think gets missed when people are strategizing on where is it we're actually going to put our efforts. And I've been thinking of this category of things as bootstrap reforms, right? Um, there, there's a lot of talk about wanting to make sure whatever changes we make are real reforms and not just reformist reforms, you know, change, make a change that doesn't actually fix anything. But I think that a lot of things, particularly like opening up communication for inmates, getting rid of censorship, getting incarcerated people to vote, um, getting incarcerated people um, access to information, whether that's through a limited internet within the prison or things like that, these are all issues. You know, education is another one. These are all issues that get dismissed often by an abolitionist framework because they're not seen as actually causing change directly. They're not seen as like, is this directly shutting down a prison? Is this getting people out of prison? Is this giving people less time in prison? Like that seems to be the checklist that anything that doesn't immediately meet those three criteria gets thrown out. I don't believe that works. We need more education in the prisons because otherwise how a prisoner is going to know how to fight for ourselves or even how to speak to organizers on the outside when something like this comes up. I mean, I wouldn't know what to talk about without the education department. I'm smart, I'm well-read, but I needed that classroom setting to actually understand what these things mean. I don't have a vote. That means I can write letters to my congressman and my senators and my governor all day freaking long. But there's zero reason for them to even open the envelope. I can't vote, which means I can't vote against them. So why are they going to listen to me? You know, back to the communication point. If I can't freely communicate the actual conditions of prison, then how are organizers on the outside actually able to carry that football forward and cause real change the way that it needs to be? And really say, you know, how about we not use... Um, cruel and unusual punishments like extended periods in isolation. Because, I don't know, maybe that causes some mental health issues. Right? Like, when you're speaking about um, staff misconduct within the prison, when you're speaking about abuses that happen by the system, like, these are all things that need to be fought for because they allow us to fight the larger war in a better way, in a more enlightened way. And honestly, it makes those other battles easier. So I think that's something that's often fixed. Hey, so we need more programs in prison? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know this is like a thing for some folks. It's also a thing for some folks in prison. And here's why. Um, I have been in prison when we had like what we would deem a lot of programs, which would be like maybe three different classes a week, right? Um, but I've also been in prison when we didn't have nothing. So if you didn't have some kind of job assignment or you weren't in ABE class, there was nothing, right? And so 
but the programming that there is always in prison is church. So this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I am going to ask you to go ahead on and read that case, Alone versus Shabazz, for a little more context. Prisons have absolute control over the people. Absolutely. This is like all the way down to how you pray. Okay. And so there's not a lot of educational, there's an abundance of church programming. The problem with the church programming is that it tends to reinforce the rightness of the state. Right. It entirely reinforces the rightness of the state. Literally, you can go to almost any church service and the person is going to tell you that God sent the police to bring you into the prison. Right. And so I can ask, I can't tell you how many times I've seen folks come back from church crying, the place that's supposed to like make you feel better and you crying because you're wretched and gay and mentally well and addicted. Right. But prison is going to save you from the wretchedness that's you. I think that this is. I think obscene is not even strong enough a word for that. Right. Um, I think obscene is not even strong enough a word for that. So having spaces in the prison that are not that. Right. Where you can think with some other folks about some things, ask some questions, learn some stuff, right? And learn it with other people. I think that is so incredibly important. So I spent, I can't, I can't tell you how many, how much time I spent in prison trying to push back on this idea that prison saved my life. And I've actually said these words, coming to prison saved my life. It was never the actual prison. It was people that I met in prison folks that I met in prison that had my back, that took care with me. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't, the prison is not, to, that it presents itself as like this beneficial, this beneficial benevolent thing that's like benign that just happens to be there in case we need it, it is obscene and just perverse as fuck. Um, and so to have other programs in there. And so I've been in some of those bullshit programs too, right? Uh, but some of them weren't bullshit or maybe they started out to be, but this is why they're not bullshit. Cause at the end of the day, I think that at the least they get you out your cell for a minute. They get you out of your cell for a minute. So you get to pass a kite to your wife or your friend or something. You might get some fresh air for a minute, you know, something like that. And that is absolutely essential too. Because passing that kite is it is just as important as that actual class. That five minute walk from your cell to the school building, that's important. That is, I can't even stress to you how important that is. What I'm asking is like, if you can pass a background check, go teach you a class of some kind in a prison. Do some poetry workshops, some theater workshops. If you got a PhD, go teach something, but go. We, we need that in such a way to have, so we catch up our vocabulary, right? But really to have that space where, I don't even know how to explain this for real, to have that space where we can just be a little less in prison, if that makes sense. Right, Absolutely. and so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just saying yes. You were saying if that makes sense, and I was saying yes, it does. Feel free to keep going. 
I think, oh man, there, there's so much to this. Um, I think all of this to me, taking care is abolition. Like you, if you're mindful, you're going to come to the conclusion of abolition, right? If you are really serious about taking care, the world that we live in now, we got to take care of each other, despite the world that we live in. And we're supposed to be living in a world where it's one and the same, right? We understand that you ain't good if I ain't good and so on. You know what I'm saying? And this is not right now. We're always almost at war all the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and so another thing I want to push back on too is this idea in prison of, because I know it's like, it's a lot even to get into a prison. I know that for folks that go teach in the prison and stuff like that, that's a lot, right? The prisons are all a gazillion miles away here in Illinois. Anyway, all the prisons are a gazillion miles away from Chicago. Um, but the idea that it lends to the institution, maybe it does, but we still in there. Like there's still people in prison right fucking now. You know what I'm saying? So if you can, of course, like write people in prison, but go see people, go teach a class, give people something to do, something else to do, right? That, that I can't say how important that is. The violence that is prison is, we can write books and books and books. And unless you're there, you're never really, really gonna know. Um, and I genuinely, genuinely wish and hope nobody else ever has to know. Right? It's, it's enough of us. There are enough of us. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I lost my train of thought and there was a particular thing that Amber said that I wanted to address. Oh, back to programs. There's always, this happens in the prison and it's because of the manufactured scarcity of the prison right where there's pushback on people trying to go to programs for different reasons so you might have somebody that's going to the drug treatment program and the next person's going to be like they only go in so they can get the days right what we call it good time it's called different things in other prisons but you can get depending on like your crime of conviction you can get some time off your sentence for going to like the drug unit or other different things other different programs and so then there's always this, well, why are you going? You're only going for the days or for different church events. Well, what are you going for? You ain't even supposed to be in there because you gay. This kind of competition that gets created by this manufactured scarcity. You know what I'm saying? And so as many folks as can go in the prison and do something, please go. Please go. And go ahead. No, I'm just saying, yes, yes. Um, it makes a lot of sense. I've uh, done prison programs over the years, organized them, uh, particularly in juvenile prisons and uh, detention centers. And yeah, they're, they're hard. They're hard. Um, there's a lot to say about that. And maybe it's another day, but I'm wondering, I know they had time for questions. So if there were our questions to feed to us, please share them with us so we can answer them. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Jacob Watkins yeah. is asking, what are some beginning steps we as early stage abolitionists can take to build relationships with comrades on the inside in our local communities? Yeah. And what was your response, Bonnie? 
um, to get to know some abolitionists in his local community and write to some folks in prison. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to say something about um, um, about how hard it is maybe for some people to get connected to folks on the inside. It's There's actually so many of us who are in some way connected to incarcerated people. But, you know, I, one thing I don't want to take for granted is like, finding people is not like finding people to connect with is not always easy. And so I want to offer that if folks can put into the chat on YouTube, um, I, I created at the beginning of this year, uh, nine solidarity commitments to and with incarcerated people, a list of nine commitments people should take in 2021 that can be directly impactful in the lives of incarcerated people. And I would say that one of the things that I say in there is letter writing, but I don't just say letter writing. I also put links to organizations that offer people connections to pen pals on the inside. So um, I will, I will, if people can't find that, I'll make sure that's available to you. Jacob, so that you can easily find a person that way to connect with. Yeah. Next question on here, Moni, can you can you block your um, like mute yourself for a minute? Because I'm getting feedback. Thank you. Um, I do a music recording program in a prison in Portland, Oregon, and I was let in. And now locked, yeah, locked out again. What are some ways that I can support the guys inside? Also, I'm tempted to, but afraid to push DOC boundaries and peril my program. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a question from Nate. Um, it's kind of a question that I did not necessarily want to get into tonight, just because it isn't actually that easy to get inside prisons or jails and do work. Um, I know that from personal experience. Um, oftentimes, you need so many connections to get in. You need to know a person. Uh, they make you jump through so many hoops. If you've got volunteers that you're trying to bring in, there are all the background checks people have to go through. I mean, it's it is a it is really not easy, and they do that on purpose because, as I mentioned at the beginning, prison is a rupture, and they are trying to make sure that people don't get inside. So you have to work really hard to get inside, and then you have to work really hard to stay inside, and that's where the problems lie—the staying inside part. If you're running a project or a program and some egregious things are going on, and you speak out on that you risk imperiling your program and getting your program kicked out on out of the of the prison but like are you, ethically is it okay to just shut up when there are horrible things going on you know people it it isn't that easy and i think i think we have to have honest conversations about what it is we're trying to do when we're in those spaces we ended up stopping a program that we really wanted to keep in a juvenile uh, detention center just because it was so they were so egregiously like against what we were trying to do with the actual program and treating the young people that were inside there. We just couldn't continue to have our program there in good faith. We had to leave. So it really becomes a thing where you have to go back and forth. We explained to the young people why we couldn't come back. They were sad, but they totally understood. 
and actually were in support of us because they were being punished and told they couldn't come to program. The whole point was to have the program and not to, you know, keep people out, particularly the people who needed that space the most. So it's not easy. And I would just say that you have to be very, you have to make a decision that is a decision that you can live with. So that's what my response would be, Nate. Um, You have to have a decision that you can live with. Um, I think the next question, Moni, is for you. Absolutely, Stephen. Um, this is so. This is totally possible out here. It's totally possible out here. Um, I see repeat, it out here. Repeat the question so people can. Hear. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. You and your comrades created a community of caring that did not involve the staff, which was able to address harm and avoid or prevent violence. Is that kind of community possible outside? Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely possible. And in fact, it happens all the time, right? It happens all the time. We might not see it happen because we, everything else that does happen is like everywhere, put out everywhere, right? But these things happen all the time. Anytime that someone sees something where you just feel like, oh, it's going to go down and you just kind of divert away from that. You just grab somebody real quick and be like, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee or whatever it is. Right. These things happen all the time. These things happen all the time. There's like when I was growing up. Like my mom and dad had some uh, sometimes violent relationship. So every so often. I will stay with one of my grandparents for a couple of weeks or one of my aunties for a month or something. Right. And so that's a way of keeping me from harm and ostensibly for them to work their stuff out. You know what I'm saying? But these things happen all the time. It is absolutely possible. What can happen is that we can better resource the stuff that is happening and create more. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, it's absolutely possible. It happens every day. Wonderful. Um, Are there other questions? Let me see. I think those are the questions that I see on the page. Um, We're almost at time. Mani, do you want to end with some thoughts to close? And then I'll go after you. Yes. With regard to violence, right? People that are locked up for violent crimes, um, for violent incidences. Uh, I was listening to Tank, right? And there are a couple of things. One, when we talk about this kinds of violence, there's like, so many assumptions that when it does happen, people are not sorrowful or regretful or remorseful. And that couldn't be further from the fucking truth. Right? It is so much of that sorrow and regret and remorse that moves people to care for people in the ways that they do in prison. Right? It is, that's the thing that moves people to try to be there for other people. And so, and this goes with the fact that by and large and all the numbers, you can check any set of numbers you want, fact check me. 
people that were locked up for violent crimes are the least likely people to return to prison on either a technical violation or a new case, right? Versus people that are locked up for nonviolent crimes that are largely either a drug case or whatever case relating to drugs, right? Addiction and mental wellness. Um, And so what I think is happening here is that Long timers, we've learned a different way, a newer way of coping that all them rehab programs and shit that they be throwing in the prison, the bullshit programs have not figured out, right? Um, and this is from the care that we take with each other. So a lot of what happens is like, we're there for the people that come and go from the prison that come and go from the prison, right? And there's a sort of, Like certainly there's a kind of like a little bit of anger and envy to be honest because like why are you here again even though we know after sitting there for so long we know what people are up against we don't really know no until we get out here ourselves but we got a good fucking idea you know what i'm saying because we keep seeing the same folks come back and the same folks come back and so we try our best to just take care of them while they're here with while they're there in the prison with us and worry like a mug while they are gone because we know we know where they going you know and so it 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 creates it can create like this incredibly false divide between the people that are there because we're looking at folks like so-and-so's violent versus so-and-so who isn't when the actual violence is totally created by the prison it's completely created by the prison, by the PIC, by capitalism, by all, by all the stuff, right? And so when we're talk, we have to think, when we talk about violence, that we have to talk about the whole thing, not just the one incident that sent someone to prison. I wanna say, this is Daniel Sered, Daniel Sered and I'm gonna paraphrase it poor as hell. Um, no one enters violence for the first time by committing it. I'm probably saying it wrong. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It is that for, it is exactly that for everyone in the prison, right? And just because like someone is there for a violent crime does not mean they did the thing. And even if they did, I can tell you, I can promise you on everything. If people, if there really was a do over button, that you could just push and really time travel and go back and undo some shit. That's exactly what people would do. You know what I'm saying? And so when we're talking and thinking about violence, it's knowing that everyone is capable of it for real, you know? Um, And two, that's not all a person is in prison. Like they say in treatment language, once an addict, always an addict. I personally don't believe that bullshit either. Um, But also just because whatever got someone locked up, that is not all they are. That's just one moment out of their lives. And it's always remembering that and remembering like actual violence is the whole system that created this whole thing. 
Thank you so much, Lonnie. That's so powerful and so real. And I really don't have much to add. I just want to thank everybody for joining today. Thank you to all the organizers. Thank you to the wonderful interpreters and the captioner. Um, we appreciate you. Um, I want to just take one moment to uplift um, the fact that there's so much wonderful work that's being published by incarcerated people. Mani, can you put up your yourself on mute for a second? I'm sorry, I'm hearing the feedback again. Um, yeah, I just want to give a, a heads up to folks to uh, please go ahead and start a study group. Use the study and struggle materials to start a study group, an inside-outside one. And I would also say there's a wonderful uh, kind of uh, zine that is out called In the Belly, which is a zine um, that Stevie Wilson and some other folks on the inside are putting have put together. It's for abolitionist uh, incarcerated folks. And I want to encourage people to uh, sub, you know, subscribe to their Patreon so that you can get direct information, direct ideas, uh, the intellectual thinking and labor uh, that uh, incarcerated people do is critical to our movements. And I'm just so glad that we got to be in conversation with Amber and April and Tank today and always so grateful to be in conversation with Moni Cosby. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.